And welcome to March 7th, 2012 of the Arts Report, your weekly fix of arts, news, reviews, interviews, and good times, arts times. We're on CITR 101.9 FM. You can listen to us streaming at CITR.ca. I'm Megan Thomas. He's Nick Sartor. Hello. And we are going to be having some fun today. We're talking Vancouver International Dance Festival, the odd couple, female version, how to disappear completely, people of a feather, plus reviews of goodness, Kokoro dance, a Tiempo Libre giveaway, and some amazing events coming up. We're also joined in the booth by Adam and Laura. Hello. Hi. Yeah, there's some of our volunteers. So if you ever want to get involved, just come on down. We'd love to hear you. So what are you up to this week, Nick? What did you what do? Am I, what am I up to? What did I do? What did you do? I went and saw some things that were cool. <laughs> I guess you want me to tell you more. About I, what I mean, were. I do. Yeah, okay. Um, I went and saw a really great one-act show uh, called Red Letters um, that was produced by some studio... 58 grads from Langara College and it was phenomenal it was a great original work and um, I don't think it's running anymore unfortunately otherwise I would tell you to go see it but um, it was a really great little one act comedy for high school students so they produced it and wrote it for high school students and then made it in a high school they did it at Eric Hamber Secondary in Vancouver which was really cool Um, it was weird going into a high school to watch play again though um, for the uninitiated, so what is a one-act play? It means it has no intermission and usually is under an hour. So this was, show was about 45 minutes. Okay, fantastic. That's Indeed. cool. And uh, I actually am going to Gordon tonight. Pretty excited. Mm-hmm. Um, written and directed by Morish Panich. And he's act- it's actually published by Talon Books, which is one of my favorite local publishers. Um, they do high-end stuff. So mm-hmm. I'm pretty excited. It is written and directed by the writer. Cool. So and that's at the Arts Club, right? Yeah, it's at the Arts Club, the review awesome. stage. So that's where they do their local kind of indie stuff. Cool. Um, and I don't know. For some reason, I find that if it's directed by the person that writes it, it can either be just pretentious or it can be much <laughs> better interpreted. So we'll have to see. I'll give get, you a report next week. This is true. And I guess it depends how involved the writer actually is in the staging of the work. It yeah, always seems to be that way. Well, yeah, exactly. It's like sometimes playwrights can just say, okay, here, I've written my play, and here you go, people making the play, or that cannot happen, and they can be very involved and not let the directors and whatever yeah. have their own vision. These are my words. Yes. Now, I guess I should mention, and you probably can already tell, that this is our first show together. No, what are you talking about? <laughs> we are professionals. <laughs> Thomas, we're pro at this, man. Um, and uh, so we've said goodbye to Adam, and it was very heartfelt, but whatever, that guy's gone now. And it's was, us. Uh, let's not say, it wasn't heartfelt, it was hilarious, and we yes. made a lot of fun of him, and... Um, I miss him a little bit. It, a little. It's it's a little weird being in the studio. This we're actually gonna no we're actually Adam. gonna see the play tonight together. So we're gonna go. Oh, look at that's and, nice. And so he'll be back. We won't be able to get rid of him. I said never come back. And he's like, no, please let me come back. And then I said, okay. <laughs> he'll be so upset. Yes. Um. You know what we didn't do though? I realized because I, I you know we deviated out of mm-hmm. the usual Adam plan. We should probably tell people what's coming up in the show today. Yeah, I actually did do that. Oh, then I was just too busy. Pushing buttons. Pushing buttons. It's a very important part of the show, pushing buttons. And I have Nick on the board because I kind of know what I'm doing there, but Nick knows better. I don't well, know if that's true. I, we'll see. Time will This is your interview. Tell. Okay. <laughs> so should we get right into it? Let's do it. Okay. I, this iPad is amazing. Uh, 
We actually have the Vancouver International Dance Festival coming up. Uh, it's actually on right now mm-hmm. at uh, venues all around the city. Um, just finished is the Alonzo King Lines Ballet. So that actually finished last week. And uh, coming on right now, uh, we have Kokoro Dance and Natsu Nakajima. Uh, are going to be at the Roundhouse Community Stage um, starting yesterday and going through the 11th. And then at the Roundhouse Performance Center Stage, we have Ink Boat, uh, we have Lucy Gregoire and Yoshida Hono, and Teketeru Kudo, and that's going on till the 11th as well. Now this year, apparently, uh, we have the tension between ballet which is, is of course a very traditional dance form and buto which uh, as far as I understand it is like a modernist uh, Japanese dance form that was started in the 60s and it focuses on non-traditional movement um, buto apparently actually means just step huh. and so it is very highly focused on the movements for themselves and expression um, and uh, you can have all different forms that are referencing back to this kind of avant-garde style and uh, we actually are going to have a review a little bit later so um, cool. So a dance newbie can tell us a little about what it was like to experience a, such a like an avant-garde style. Well yeah and they present some really interesting and definitely avant-garde stuff in the dance festival they, you know it's definitely known in their history to bring in some work that's definitely pushing some boundaries yeah and it's i mean people from all over the world san francisco montreal vancouver and japan um we actually um i talked to jay hirabayashi who uh with his wife barbara bouger um bourget pardon me uh did Kokoro Dance. Now, they're a theater society that were formed in 1986, and they will be performing um, from the 6th, so that's yesterday, until the 8th, which is tomorrow at the Roundhouse Community Stage. It's actually free for members. Three buck membership. Wow. Yeah. So it's three bu- basically it's three it's bucks. It's $3, but the then you can go and s- then you don't have to pay again for the rest of the show. Oh, wow. So it's, cool. uh, it's a one-time annual membership, and it's kind of how they keep the whole thing going. That's great. Um, so... Kokoro, um, meaning heart, soul, and spirit, um, focuses on creating evocative, provocative experiences in the in the kind of the Buto style where you're pushing boundaries. Um, you know, it, it they want to bring together the East and the West. And what's really interesting is Jay Hirabayashi is going to be performing uh, his solo piece, which is about half an hour, and he actually choreographed it to um, his son, Joseph Hirabayashi, uh, EP Aunts and Uncles. So Jay is actually a friend of the show. Aunts and Uncles um, with Adriana uh, LaBelle and Daniel Ruiz. Mm -hmm. And then he's also in the SSRIs. (laughs) I know. All these CITR friends. I know. Everyone's our friend. (laughs) Well, that's also true. Yeah. So um, I actually talked to him and uh, he told me a little bit about what the whole thing was about. Basically, um, he was looking to perform his next piece and he was a little unsure as to exactly what he wanted to do. And he heard the EP, so it had already been completed at that Mm -hmm. point, and he decided to choreograph to the songs. Mm -hmm. And he said that it was very much focused on his journey time-wise. He's 65 now, which is, um, you know, for a dancer such bodily, like, I can't imagine. It's it's an amazing achievement and uh, probably keeps so active because of his dance background. Mm-hmm. And he said that he really focused on, you know, coming into his age now and thinking about himself at Joseph's age. He's 25. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing is that they formed Kokoro Dance the year 
Joseph was born. So it's it all Ooh. comes together. Yeah, focusing on his mortality and um, what then aunts and uncles perform with him on stage. So it's this. Oh wow! And okay. they have this beautiful Baroque sound pop with this really um, aggressive like tense vocal Mm -hmm. so it all comes together beautifully um it was uh choreo they also have actually played with ssris and site-specific things like wreck beach gravel Mm -hmm. island um where they just kind of surprise people um (laughs) you know and he really uh i know i was actually talking with joe as well and he was talking about working with his father and and um, how this dance has obviously always been a part of his life. And uh, we talked a little bit about how, uh, you know, that stereotypical relationship where you have, you know, you're rebelling against your parents. I mean, it's not really there artistically if your parents are, you know, these wonderful um, contemporary dancers that are like this pure art. Yeah. You know, it's it's really uh, wonderful. Um let me tell you a little bit about some of the other things that are coming up. Um, as I mentioned, we have Kokoro Dance. Um, Ink Boat actually is performs right after. Um, and uh, Adam, actually, Adam Smiley, he's here with us today. And he saw Kokoro Dance uh, do mm. Rock My Body. So it's Jay Hirabashi's solo, Rock My Body. Cool. Um, and he... As it says in the description, Rock My Body responds to new urgencies coming from Jay's skin and bones. The passage of time, the endless repetitions of the daily and nightly emergences of the sun and the moon, the need to push the body, remembering the ones who are gone, the solace of the blues. So mm-hmm. tell us, Adam, mm-hmm. how was your uh, response to this? Did, did you get the, uh, the nightly emergences of the sun and the moon, the need to push the body? Nightly emergence. Go closer. No, um, I didn't actually get that. Uh, I'm a bit of an amateur when it comes to dance. Mm-hmm. And mostly I kind of got the impressions, the like intensity. I could tell mm-hmm. there was, you know, powerful things going on. Yeah. But yeah, the sun. Nah. I think that what, he, what he's probably talking about, too, is time passing. Okay, yeah, that was in there. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know you were mentioning about how you found that the um, the whole... Performance was almost him just standing up. It was. It was just just him kind of standing there, the band in a line behind. Mm-hmm. It, it worked though. It worked really well. He, uh, the you know. And now, how did the band and the uh, the dance work together? Because you were mentioning that they uh, that the having the live band there really made the experience for you. For me, it did. As an amateur, I kind of you know had my fill maybe of the artistic expression, and I could at least focus on, on the music. Um, but it was much, much better than just dancing, say, to pre-recorded music, having mm-hmm. actual people be there. There wasn't, like, a, a lot of interaction. They weren't looking at each other or anything. You could tell they were related, but it, it was like he was maybe trying purposefully to take it somewhere else, take it beyond maybe the regular listener. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, the, you know, as I was, we were talking earlier, the idea of uh, Anson Uncles does... Baroque uh, pop, mm-hmm. and it kind of reminds you of those times pre any type of mass media, where you would all just be sitting around absorbed in the music, and then to have the dance happening at the same time with that intensity um, must have been very visceral. Very visceral. 
Yeah. So you don't really have to know a lot about dance. It was more about the experience of the dancer themselves. No, no. I would highly recommend it for anybody. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Um, cool. You can actually check out a video of uh, Jay performing a different piece um, on our Facebook page. Um, so like that, obviously. You should like us on Facebook if you search for The Arts Report on CITR. You will find us. Like us on Facebook. Like us on the bus. Like us all around town. And then, um, you know, definitely go out and see. So they'll be performing uh, tonight and tomorrow at the community stage at the Exhibition Hall at the Roundhouse at Pacific and Davy. It is free with your membership. So it's three bucks, an amazing show. Stay for Ink Boat. Um, and you can check out all the information and pick up tickets at, for any of the non-free shows at uh, VIDF. .ca. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to thank Jay and Joe for actually joining me. Unfortunately, there were some technical difficulties mm. and I really appreciated their time, but I had to kind of uh, recap what they spoke about. Um, Jay also talked about the first time that he saw Buteau and this uh, very similar, this uh, man all in white who you know, took an hour just to stand from a crouching position and he had these pieces of silk wrapped around his body and they each fell to the floor. And the interesting thing about Buto is that it's often performed in the nude and it approaches um, taboo subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it, it you know, because it's so freeform, I guess it's whatever the people are interested in themselves. But they've done stuff at Wreck Beach where mm-hmm. they come out of the sand um, or they've surprised people. So definitely check that out online and, uh, you know, See all of the Vancouver International Dust Festival. Yeah, there's so much. There's a lot of dance that happens in Vancouver um, that you should go see. Um, You know, the the Scotiabank Dance Center um, program is a really great season, and they work with the Push Festival and the Dance Festival and a number of other groups that bring in dance into the city. And there's a lot of great opportunities, not only to check out local dance companies, but the international companies that tour to Vancouver. So it's a good chance to see all of that fantastic contemporary new work. It's, you know, bridging some uh, some of those gaps. Absolutely. Yes. So, um, are we going to take a break? Let's take or a short we? break. Oh, we're going to take a break. It's going to be exciting. We're going to hear some <laughs> ads. Oh, it's going to be great. I'm I'm so excited. Okay, stay with us. Are you walking to class? Are you grabbing a coffee? Got lunch hour to kill? We invite you to fill the silence of your day with the sound of some live music. Music on the mind? UBC's newest student concert initiative invites the School of Music out of the concert hall into the schoolyard. Ten concerts at five venues on one campus. Let's get music on the mind at UBC. For more information, visit ubcmusiconthemind.com. Sponsored by CITR Radio, Vancouver, BC. March 8th is International Women's Day, observed since the early 20th century to celebrate women's solidarity in the fight for equal economic, social, and political rights. Here at CITR, we are celebrating all things female with a 24-hour marathon dedicated to women's issues and, of course, women in music. Tune in March 8th for your local and independent source for International Women's Day programming. Rosie, 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 the Riveter. And you're listening to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9. That's CITR 101.9. FM on your dial. Do you use those anymore? Do people use those? I think they do. FM on the dial. You know what I discovered the other day? I'm just (laughs) just going to throw in this anecdote. If you have an iPhone, um, you can download an app called TuneIn. Um, and it lets you listen to any local radio station. So it means you can tune in to CITR when you're on the bus using your iPhone. Oh, that's it's fantastic. pretty great. Well, you can also stream us from CITR.ca. That's true. And you can listen to us on podcasts later. 
Yes, on the website or on iTunes. Exactly. So you can download us for free. And you know what? I know you're going to want to listen to this again. This is some good stuff, people. This is, you know what? I wonder if later down the road, if someone's going to use this footage to, to mock us when we decide to no longer do the show, like we did of Adam last, last if, week. If they don't, I would be really sad. I feel <laughs> like that's how you show you care. But, uh, I see. It's out of, it's out of love. So... You have a little something to tell us about how to disappear completely a one-man show. Yes. Um, th- this is a one-man show that uh, is created by uh, a lighting designer in Vancouver called uh, Itai Erdel. And he created this show uh, last year for the Chutzpah Festival. Um, it's a very personal story. Um, it's uh, a one-man show that documents the intimate, true-life story of saying goodbye to his mother. Um, basically, and, and Itai will tell us more in the interview in a second, but basically, um, he he lost his mother. He found out his mother was um, diagnosed with terminal cancer and was going to uh, die. And he went to care for her in her last uh, days. And um, Itai, in addition to being a lighting designer and storyteller, is also a filmmaker. And so uh, documented this whole um, experience in his life and created a show about it. So uh, it pre- was presented, like I mentioned last year, as part of the Chutzpah Festival. And this year um, is going on tour um, first to the Shadbolt Center for the Arts in Burnaby. Uh, and so I had a chance actually to speak to uh, Itai earlier today um, about the show and ask him a little bit more about it. So, of course, first, I just asked him to sort of give us a quick summary of uh, what the show is all about. So I, am, I immigrated to um, Canada from Jerusalem in 1999, and I went to film school here, to Vancouver Film School for a year. And shortly after I finished film school, I got a phone call from Israel that my mother has terminal cancer. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of my family all had jobs and were busy, and I was sort of a freelance filmmaker. So, and I wanted to spend, I wanted to see my mother, and I wanted, I was very, very close to my mom, and wanted to spend every moment I had left with her. And so she asked me if I would take care of her at home. She was a nurse for many years before that. Mm-hmm. I mean, when she, last few years of her life, she was a professor for literature in the university. But for years before that, she was a nurse and knew hospitals very well, and did not want to die in a hospital and asked if I would come and take care of her at home. And then, you know, when you have cancer, the the hospice, the people from the hospice come and they train you. Mm -hmm. And so you can do that. And so I did that, and I became my mother's sort of main caregiver for the last few months of her life. But because I was right after film school, I I brought a camera with me and started Mm -hmm. shooting, which was kind of her idea. It was her suggestion that I make a film and call it Towards My Mother's Death. And so my mother was very cooperative with the whole mm-hmm. thing, and I ended up shooting, and I've always been a photographer and shoot a lot of stills as well, so I ended up with a lot of video and a lot of stills of my mother. And my mother's all approach to death was quite unique. She was a very eloquent woman and a very um, intelligent woman, and, and she was quite stoic. She kept saying, you know, if I had to bury you, that's a tragedy. If you bury me, that's, that's life. Mm-hmm. And, and she was really strong and sort of consoling everybody around her. And, um, and took opportunity of the, of the filming to, to sort of um, leave a legacy behind or something, you know? Mm-hmm. I think it was important to her that <clears throat> some of the stuff that of her life would be documented as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so at the time I was going to make a film, but then I came back to Israel and, uh, sorry, came back to Canada um, um, shortly after she died and, and, um, and cut a short trailer and then realized that it was way too close and too personal to make this film right now and there were also legal issues. And I just decided to put it aside. And then a few years after that, my friend James Long, who runs a theater company called the Theater Replacement, mm-hmm. and together with Michael Bayamamoto, had asked me if they can use some of this material for a workshop that they did with some actors. 
Mm. And so we did that, and they had all the actors from different disciplines came, and um, and I told them the story of my mom and showed them some of the footage, and they all used it to create 10-minute pieces of theater and dance and music. And um, when we were showing this at the Russian Hall here in Vancouver, I was sitting on stage and translating the footage doll in Hebrew. My mother was in mm-hmm. Israel. So I was simultaneously translation, translating oh, wow. some of the some of the stuff, and, and the, that's sort of what stayed with people. It was very strong. It was as if I'm interacting with my dead mother. Mm. I was also commenting about it a little bit. And that's sort of the whole idea of doing a show with using the footage came came about, and that was five, six years ago. Mm-hmm. And then it took a few years, and, and in the last two years, we did, we've did we done extensive workshops on this piece. And, um, and yes, so it's a really unique circumstance where I work in theater, I'm a lighting designer, and I have, I'm also a, a storyteller. I feel very comfortable. I'm, I don't consider myself an actor, but mm-hmm. I feel very comfortable on stage. And I have a, quite a unique, remarkable story to tell, mm-hmm. and all this footage. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, t- I guess, originally the show was presented uh, last year, is that right, as part of the Chutzpah Festival? Festival? Yeah. yeah. So, um, when you were approached to bring the show back this year at the Shadbolt Center, um, what did you what did you think, I guess, initially? What was your initial reaction to doing the show again? Well, we were, were sort of doing it part of a bigger tour. With, we're taking it to Toronto in mm-hmm. May, mm-hmm. To the Factory Theatre, and then next year to Ottawa. And so um, I'm very excited about touring mm-hmm. this show. This feels like the most um, um, exciting and, and important thing I've ever done in my life. Um, the reaction mm-hmm. to the show were just remarkable. It's sort of, I realized it's bigger than me and bigger than my mom. It's mm-hmm. an entity of its own, and people mm-hmm. reacted very strongly to it. Mm-hmm. And so it was extremely rewarding. Every night I had the lineup of people waiting to talk mm-hmm. to me after the show, telling me about mm-hmm. and how it affected their lives. And, and the show really um, forces people to feel things. I mm-hmm. mean, it's obviously um, sad, but it's also very... Um, there's a lot of life in it. My mom was a hedonist. She loved life. She loved, you know, music and dancing and eating and, mm-hmm. and so on. And so it would be a sin to do a sad show about her. The, the show has a lot of humor and a lot of life. And, right. And so um, for me, it's a dream to do it again, you mm-hmm. know, I, I I thought it would be very sad, but it's more joyous than anything. I get right. to spend more time with my mother, and I get to, you know, when my mother was alive, I always knew I had a cool mom. I would bring <laughs> my friends over to meet her, and they all thought she was so cool. And now she's dead, and I still bring my friends over, and I still think she's cool. <laughs> so for me, I just Got get to, to spend more time with my mother. So, right. <clears throat> you know, it's a, it's a dream come true for me to do the show, and I'm extremely thankful for the Shadbox mm-hmm. and, and to the Chop Theater for producing the play. And, yeah, it's a remarkable thing for me to do. Yeah, absolutely. Now, from an audience perspective, my last question is just about some of the uh, projections, the lighting, and the special effects that are used in the show, because obviously you were mentioning before that your background as a filmmaker, or I guess you know, you know when you went back to uh, home and shot all that footage, how do you incorporate all of the video and the special effects into the show, and what does that look like for the audience when they come and see it? Um, well, the lighting is a big part of the show because I'm a lighting designer. Right. And so I use lighting as a metaphor for many, many things in the show. And mm-hmm. I talk about lighting a lot, and mm-hmm. I'm very passionate about lighting theater. And so that's sort of our way in, is that we keep going back to to the to the lighting metaphors. The the film is um, is more like a tool. I have um, there's a, there's a curtain in the back, and and 
and the, the projection is from behind, so I can open either side of the curtain and introduce different members of my family. Mm. Sometimes I open a curtain, I say, this is my sister Ayana, and then I open the other curtain, and that's my, my stepfather, and so on. And so <clears throat> the, the, the footage and the lighting are all um, um, parts of, of a way to tell the story. They enhance the story, right? basically. Excellent. But it's really all intertwined. Mm -hmm. and it's all just a way to tell this, this quite unique story and to introduce this um, very remarkable woman. And that was Itai Erdal talking about his one-man show, How to Disappear Completely, which is going to be at the Shadbolt Center for the Arts in Burnaby. Uh, and um, it's going to be a really great show, so you should go check it out. Um, it's running March 7th. That's uh, today. Um, to the 10th uh, at 8 o'clock. Um, there's a preview tonight for $15. Uh, and then from March 8th tomorrow until the 10th, uh, tickets for adults are $32. Uh, students and seniors are $27. Uh, of course, Shadbolt uh, Center for the Arts is on Deer Lake Avenue in Burnaby. And if you would like to get tickets, which you should do, you can visit them online at shadboltcenter.com or you can phone them 604 205-3000. That sounds awesome. It's going to be really great. I uh, admire what he's doing. Um, and uh, Itai, I, I know him by reputation as a lighting designer only. Um, and so to, to see this kind of work presented, I think, would be really interesting. That sounds great. Yeah, guys, yeah. check it out. Yes. Now, um, I hate to jump around a little bit, but I thought um, we could maybe just give a shout out to Ariel, who actually also saw um, something at the Vancouver International yeah. Dance Festival. Yes, and um, because I we really like the festival, and uh, you know we like what it says, we thought we'd spend a little more time on it. Now, uh, Adam told us a little bit already about um, Rock My Body. Mm -hmm. And he enjoyed it. Um, very visceral and very intense. Now, Ariel saw Inkboat, which is right after. Right. And she is sorry to say that she did not enjoy it. Huh. Yeah. Now, what she is she also a, a bit of a dance newbie. <laughs> and... Um, well, what she did, she said that it was um, it was pretty hard to judge because it was surrealist. But uh, she said that the use of music and sound was really interesting. The set was beautiful, um, and the you know it was it was well executed. But she said that um, that it really was not actually insane enough. Like it was a little too melodramatic rather mm. than um, sharply kind of avant-garde. Mm. Um, she liked, uh, you know, some of the imagery about uh, moonlight and, you know, these hauntings. Uh, there was a haunting female lead. Uh, and she also really, she said that the stage reminded her of a, a Magritte painting and was effectively unsettling. Ah, well, that's but, good. She said that it was uh, the idea of a quote-unquote story between a man and a woman dealing with the limbo of their lives. Um, and it doesn't sound like they she they pushed it far enough for her. Mm. Like it was they didn't they didn't bring a new spin on it. Mm. So it sounds like that the um, the setting and the actual movements were quite beautiful, but didn't come together for her. She wasn't she wasn't into it. That's too bad. So. Um, you know, we always want to support the local arts, but you got to be honest, it's not for everyone. Um, and the, the nice thing about this this festival is that it does really present some avant-garde stuff. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of the pe people who go to these festivals um, are okay with not liking it sometimes because it's really about trying something new yes. and trying something that maybe pushes your boundaries a little bit. 
So just because she didn't like it doesn't mean that you might not like it. But I think that's not really the point to a certain degree. It's to experience the dance. Well, yeah. And I mean, there's, you know, there's something to be said as much as, of course, we love uh, Ariel as a contributor to the show that Mm -hmm. she uh, perhaps does not have the same sort of familiarity with the Mm -hmm. form as people who might have seen dance toured around the world. So, I mean, there's there's something to be said about that, too. But um, she made some very good points in what she said. So, I mean, it's I haven't seen it. Um, You should go watch it, though, because um, you can make up your own mind. I think one of the things, too, about dance is that it is so visceral and yet so mm-hmm. highly conceptual. Yeah. And sometimes those things come against each other. So maybe um, with something like Rock My Body, it's purely visceral. And sometimes that can be, you know, uh, that comes up against this whole idea of the story and the sets. And, you know, maybe they should have gone one direction or the other. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. This is well, true. I think you guys should all go out and see it. And then you should email us and tell us whether you thought Ariel was right or wrong. You can uh, at Arts Report, C-I-T-R, Arts Report us CNTR on Twitter. underscore Arts Report. That's right, on Twitter. You can yeah, and you can leave our comments on the Facebook page Indeed. as well. So, did you know International Women's Day is tomorrow? I did know that, it's actually. It's a day for the ladies. Can I, t- can I do a, a shameless plug? I sit on a Please board. Do. I just realized this is can a Can you do a shameful time. one? Maybe just like bring it down a notch. Just oh, be ashamed. Sh- yeah, that would be better, actually. Yeah. That, that would make more sense <laughs> of what I'm going to say. Um, yeah. I sit on a board for a wonderful uh, theater company called Alley Theater, Mm -hmm. and uh, we did an event last night uh, in celebration of International Women's Day of a staged reading of a show called Mrs. Warren's Profession, which is a very famous uh, George Bernard Shaw play, Um, and we had a bunch of actors come together, a really phenomenal group of actors, and um, they uh, did a staged reading where they basically read this this full-length play, Um, and it was a benefit to support some... um, uh, centers that provide services to sex workers in the downtown east side. Um, and um, it was uh, really fantastic. And um, Alley Theatre is going to be producing the, the play in full next year. And so this was sort of a little preview experimental, you know, chance to see the work before it's going to be fully a staged. And, um, and so the reason I'm telling you this is because you should check out more info about Alley Theater and perhaps donate. Yes, donate and because, and, uh, you know, women uh, all over the world and in actually almost every profession, <laughs> unfortunately still kind of oppressed. Well, it was interesting to see how mu- how much you know similarity there was. That play is written almost a hundred years mm-hmm. ago. But one of the questions we did a little talkback panel after with a few of the the uh, women who work at the two organizations that were uh, the beneficiaries of the event, and you know it was really shocking actually to find all, all of the differences between uh, some of the issues that came up long you know 100 years ago that are still prevalent today um and so actually i I should mention these two organizations as well uh the wish drop-in center and pace these are two organizations that uh work with women on the downtown east side those guys they're great they are so check them out and and you know support them as well um because they're doing really uh important work to make uh women safe Mm -hmm. and i know that you know uh one of the things I actually, as a good segue, one of the things that um, a lot of people talk about when it comes to International Women's Day is, you know, how far we've come. Mm. And um, it's hard with arts because uh, arts is a place where everyone can express themselves. But, uh, you know, like most areas, tends to be male dominated. And what I want to talk to you about right now is the odd couple, the female version. The female version. The female version. Huh. So, uh you know, The Odd Couple first showed up on stages in the 60s, uh, created by Neil Simon. 
and, uh, you know, deals with a lot of the issues of the day. And then in the 80s, in 1985, he wrote uh, a new version, the female version. So, you know, the 80s were a time of a lot of movement for women. They were coming into their own in a lot of ways professionally in North America and personally and the, uh, a lot of new boundaries being broken as to what they could do in the world. And so um, it's written by Neil Simon and directed by David C. Jones, local funny man. And um, it's opening tomorrow, March 8 at 8 p.m. And it's going to run until the 17th um, at the Jericho Arts Center. And it's actually put on by the Frolicking Divas. Now, the Frolicking Divas are an independent female production. They started in 2009, uh, Lisa uh, Derry and Lori Watt, and they actually are starring in The Odd Couple. This is their biggest production. Um, They've also done Criminal Hearts in 2009 and the Vagina Monologues. uh, And that was also uh, raised money for women in need. And uh, it was originally um, this kind of, it's a womanly twist on like the neat person meets the slob, you know, um, what type of hilarity will ensue? So it's still very funny, but at the same time, it kind of uh, in the background has those issues of Mm. divorce and um, professionalism in in the 1980s. And uh, I talked to uh, both David and Lori separately about what it was, you know, like to work on this project. And I asked David, um, why does he keep winding up directing the ladies? For the last couple of years now, as a, as a comedian and as a director, uh, I have been approached by women to direct them in shows, which took me by surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, by Secretly Women in Productions, I directed two of their shows, and then by the Divas for The Odd Couple. Uh, initially, I said no, because I, I, I thought at first it was a dated show. People have roommates all the time now, whereas in 1967, when the boy version was written and the, the girl version in 1985, it was still a little cutting edge, mm-hmm. <laughs> whereas now it's the norm. But upon rereading it, I really uh, admired Neil Simon's wit, uh, on how he's able to get pathos and, and empathy for these characters that are also cracking all these one-liners. So I went, that's a challenge. How do you hit the comedy but still hit the heart? So that, that I said, okay, sure, I'll direct it. <laughs> do, you, do you have any, any uh, insight as to why the ladies are coming to you? I think, I think that maybe as a gay male director, I might, they might feel more comfortable with me, and also I have a bit of a reputation with comedy. But I think that might be it, is I, I can empathize maybe more with the female protagonist. How was it specifically with the Frolicking Divas? They're still relatively new from 2009, I believe, was their first production. Big step up. We're moving to a much bigger theater, with a much bigger cast, uh, a much more eclectic cast, because they're used to working with sort of their regular ensemble. Whereas when I cast all the supporting parts, I reached outside of their ensemble. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that took them from getting used to. And the pressure of putting on a big show. They've had to do a lot of fundraising, because uh, even though this is a silly comedy, once you start getting into the reality of it, it's like, oh, we need walls. We need furniture. We need we need to be able to slam doors and there's food, because <laughs> the show, there's a lot of food in it. Suddenly yeah. it was like, oh, this show is much bigger than we actually anticipated. Yeah, you have to, and you have to afford all those '80s shirts as well, of course. And you got to find all that '80s stuff. Exactly. <laughs> I'm actually carrying a bag of cassette tapes and uh, VHS tapes uh, with me as I go off to this next meeting 
because I'm bringing them into rehearsal for Ted Beck. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Did you guys bring anything out of your personal wardrobes? I think on the wardrobe, uh, Sasha has had to find uh, almost everything, but she was able to filter uh, a few things from people's wardrobes. <laughs> the other thing, too, I, t- I told Sasha, I said, definitely do 80s. We have to. It has to be set that period. But let's not send it up. Mm-hmm. Like, let's not go, aren't the 80s stupid? Look at the stupid things they wore. So I said, strike that balance of going, okay, this is authentic from the 80s, and it does look stupid. Um, but let's not overboard with, you know, shoulder pads that are nine feet high and, you know, hair teased up into giant bouffant. The 80s and the 90s are coming back as well, so I think uh, it won't be such a dissonance for them. It'll look a little more like what they're seeing on the street these days. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people do that. They, they will, they'll, have, they'll do a period piece, particularly the 80s, and then they'll go, oh my God, I found this Michael Jackson jacket. And it's like, okay, well, not everyone wore the Michael Jackson jacket. So, you, you know, you're commenting on the clothes as opposed to honoring the clothes. Yeah, you don't want the clothes to take away from the, the comedy and the, the, the heart of the piece. Um, now, exactly. uh, in the original Odd Couple, uh, it was a, a poker game, uh, was one of the, brought uh, everyone together. And in the uh, 85 uh, female version, it's uh, Trivial Pursuit with the ladies. Yes. What are Do you have any other big differences between uh, the male and the female versions that you think people will find really interesting? Um, I think the biggest thing is about the, the what the characters do for a living. They also make comments about uh, uh, what the politics were of uh, women's rights in the eighties. Um, oh, who divorced whom, and who ha- uh, and why they divorced was adjusted for the women uh, uh, as opposed to the men. Um, so they, uh, there are uh, he didn't just flip the gender; he had to flip a lot of stuff. Um, and of course, one of the one of the trivial pursuit ladies—I still call them the poker ladies—ends <laughs> uh, up getting pregnant. Uh, th- then getting pregnant, so that and that, of course, <laughs> happened in, uh, uh, in the boy version. And if you think about it too; they were also written differently, just in terms of the zeitgeist at the time. Right? 1967 mm-hmm. is very different from 1985. Absolutely. So he had to adjust and amend the line accordingly. Now that we are. Uh, almost 20 years, oh my goodness, after the uh, 85 version. Feminism is still working its way, um, and yeah. you know, ladies are still working their way into you know the mainstream. Is there anything that you think really touches on what's happening now? The biggest uh, thing that, that you have to do is he created these very complex and interesting people, and I think it's about friendship and compromise, and it's also about being on your own two feet. So that's not restricted to a time period. It's about the need to support and the need to stand on your own two feet. So that is not something that is, well, thank God in 1985 we don't have to compromise our, our values and our morals when interacting with people and mm-hmm. we no longer have to stand on our own two feet or come together. Mm-hmm. So that's what makes the play very relevant and, uh, and very, very funny as it becomes a situational comedy. Has to still get thrown. <laughs> so, Thank and goodness. Had, and we've added a fantastic toothpaste gag as well. So, okay, well, so we won't give it away. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you'll have to go see. <laughs> you will have to go see. Um, now, when it's International Women's Day tomorrow. It's an all-female company. I'm not just going to let some really funny, awesome, you know, granted guy talk about it. <laughs> so I actually also talked to one of, one of the divas, uh, Lori Watt. 
and we talked a little bit uh, a little bit about um, being women and about you know basically this is their biggest show so far and she told me a little bit about what it had taken to get there it definitely is. I mean, basically what happened in 2009 is uh, a dear friend of mine, my co-founder of the company, uh, Lisa Beth Derry, and I decided we wanted to do a production of Beth Hanley Criminal Hearts. And we put that up at the Havana Theater in uh, on Commercial Drive there. And so it was just a small group of dedicated people doing this, uh, a relatively, mm, you know, the budget wasn't too uh, big. And last year we got all two with the... Arts Matter Society, and and we did uh, vagina monologues, and we brought that to the Massey Theater. And we like to be in, involved in projects that have a social component to them, right? And mm-hmm. they're empowering to women. So uh, definitely, Evansler's vagina monologues uh, does that. And we were, were able to get some money in New Westminster for uh, a women's recovery shelter there, and a couple of other societies as well. So that was great. And then this year, um, I guess it was uh, February of last year, I approached David. We had a coffee uh, outside of VFS there, and I approached him to work with us on The Odd Couple, and he had the idea to uh, apply to be a guest production at the Jericho Arts Center. And it's been a wild ride ever since. It's been very exciting. Oh, well, yeah. it's uh, It looks to be like a really fun production. Um, we were talking a little bit about um, doing, uh, you know, the 80s version and, you, you know, paying mm-hmm. homage to the 80s and not so much sending it up. Um, you know, what was it like for you going back in time a little bit um, and kind of living in, living as an 80s woman? Uh, <laughs> Relieving my teenage years, you mean? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, obviously been, they're divorcees at the funny. time, right? So. Forrest has just split up from her husband, uh-huh. and uh, he basically kicked her out because he's had enough of her. And Olive's been uh, separated, uh, split up from her husband a bit longer than that. So it's been really interesting. Certainly, going through some of the music's been funny, mm-hmm. <laughs> and making for the uh, for the run, and you know whether or not we're going to welcome people into that when they first get into the space, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. You know, a lot of the themes are timeless. Um, David talked yes. about, um, you know, friendship and the combination of supporting each other, but also being independent. Um, are there Absolutely. any other? Yeah, are there any other things that you think still really ring true, even though it is almost twenty years later from the setting now, um, in terms of you know female empowerment? Um, what translated mm-hmm. for you? Well, it has been decades uh, since it was originally uh, done on Broadway cool for Neil Simon for creating a, a female version of the play, but yeah, there's definitely some themes that are still uh, current today. I mean, there's certainly still a struggle for pay equity in, in the province here, mm-hmm. and um, I, I think there's been leaps and bounds made, uh, essentially, to uh, the labor movement, I would think, and a lot of uh, social activists that uh, don't really stand anymore, right? that uh, don't undervalue women's work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still present today, but not nearly... Uh, the way it was, and definitely there's a lot more probably single women in the in the workforce and people choosing maybe not to get married have a family right yeah. away and those kinds of things. And the idea of um, even just women in the arts, I mean, obviously um, even today are still looking to come more into their own, and, and comedy is a very male-centric kind of area, but it seems like you guys are really representing. Well, Well, we're pretty excited about it, for sure. I mean, when we had the auditions, there was probably over 80 women that came out over a couple of days, and this is for a uh, non-union 
production. We don't have a very big budget, so basically, you know, we're we're doing what we can to fully raise uh, some decent money so we can give everybody a little bit at the end of the day. But currently, it's not. <laughs> it's a labor <laughs> so, of love. That way, unless we sell out, so everybody needs to come see our show. Um, but yeah, eighty eighty women for um, six, right? Four parts because we really because we had cast ourselves um, in the in the two lead parts going in. So. Well, I mean, if you're, you know, if it's your production, I mean, such is yeah. women's prerogative. <laughs> yeah. So, is there anything? Well, I think you want to do want to do a show, right? Just produce it yourself. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think I'll, I, that's a, a pretty strong theme in 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 BC and Vancouver arts is that, yeah, if you if you want a job or if you want uh, you want a production to happen, then you're gonna you're gonna have to do it yourself. And I think that's a a really cool. Um, kind of motivation in Vancouver is a lot of people just working oh, on their own projects. I would agree and there's lots of independent theater companies that are doing really really well for themselves and, and working really hard. There's Spectral Theater there's It's a Zoo um, there's all kinds of, of productions going on all the time and uh, I know it's challenging to get out to see all my friends shows because maybe I'm in a show or they're in a show and you know so um, definitely there's lots going on in the city all the time and it's pretty amazing. What kind of mindset should they come in with? I think they should just come to have fun. And, uh, you know, it's a Neil Simon comedy. We've been having a lot of fun. David's been great. We've got lots of, we've had lots of space to play. And uh, it's, it's been a lot of work, too, and really great. And Skype would like to apologize for those auto-tunes that you heard there. That was, is that what that was, auto-tuning? I wish. That'd be awesome. I wish it wasn't just Skype. <laughs> um, so the female version of The Odd Couple will be playing, as I mentioned. Uh, it opens tomorrow, International Women's Day, and then runs nightly, uh, except for Mondays, until March 17th. All performances take place at the Jericho Arts Centre on Discovery Street. Tickets are 20 bucks, and you can purchase them online at Brown Paper Tickets or at the door. Now, um, as she mentioned, Frolic and Divas, they do a lot of work to raise um, money for the ladies. Now, uh, Adam was just saying in the break, telling us a little bit about the beginning of International Women's Day. Can you fill us in there, Adam? Yes. Uh, I was curious if you knew why they chose March 8th. I don't know. Tell us, Adam, why did they choose March 8th? It's because it's Emma Goldman's birthday. Who is is Emma Goldman? (laughs) I thought we were going to keep doing that. Oh, I'm sorry. We'll practice it for next time, folks. For those who don't know, Emma Goldman was around, I think she was born in the 1800s and survived into past World War I. And she was the real deal as far as, say, progressive activists are concerned. Fantastic. And what exactly, do you know anything about what exactly she did specifically? She had a very full life. Um, Mostly what I read about was her time in Canada after she was exiled from the U.S. Oh, if you're exiled from the U.S., you're probably doing something right. Her life was full of basically correct decisions. One thing that really stood out was that around the time of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, she actually personally made the trip across and went and saw firsthand what was going on there and came back with accounts uh, basically informing everybody, went on a talking tour, informing everybody that really what was going on over there was nothing but state-sponsored oppression. Oh, wow. And really the image being presented to the world of like a communist kind of revolution was really just a sham. Oh, my goodness. Well, that has been the Arts Reports edition of You Should Google It. 
I've just I made up some, that. Oh, that's a good segment. Yeah, I just made we'll, up that segment. We'll, we'll try that again. <clears throat> so um, we are going to take a break. And when we get back, we are going to tell you about some amazing shows that are coming up. And we're also going to give away some tickets um, to a show uh, by a wonderful group called Tiempo Libre. Um, so get your dialing fingers ready because we will be giving you a chance to win tickets. And break. Music, the art of sound and time. Waste, to cause to lose energy, strength, or vigor. Music Waste, Vancouver's annual independent cultural festival, accepting submissions until March 31st. The festival will run from June 7th through the 10th at venues across East Vancouver and, as always, will focus on the city's more innovative and genre-defying music. Don't forget to also mark your calendars for a fundraiser planned for April 6th at the Astoria Hotel. To submit to become a part of Music Waste, just visit musicwaste.ca. Two thousand eleven marks the twenty-fifth anniversary of the Dr. Sun Yat-sen Chinese Garden since opening in nineteen eighty-six. The Dr. Sun Yat-sen Chinese Garden is very pleased to have been able to connect cultures and communities for the past twenty-five years, and continue being an arts and cultural hub in the neighborhood and the city. Watch for complimentary specials on the twenty-fifth day of every month. There are also blockbuster exhibits, community events, academic conferences, and music and theater productions lined up, plus contests and giveaways. CITR one hundred one point nine FM is proud to be a year-long partner as the Garden celebrates its twenty-fifth anniversary. For more information, visit www.vancouverchinesegarden.com. Show your friends of CITR card or simply mention that you heard about the garden on CITR to receive $2 off admission. And we're back at the Arts Report, CITR 101.9. You can check us out streaming at citr.ca. And then you can download us and podcast. That's three ways, people. We're triple the fun. Now, I'm just going to play a little something, or rather Nick is, that you might recognize... Any second now, you just have to push the button that turns it on. Theoretically, it's playing right now. It's you don't just, have the... No, it's on. Oh, it's not very loud. Oh, there it is. Oh, my goodness, you guys. Brings back memories right here. Oh, it's Fred Penner, ladies and gentlemen. Fred Penner. Now, he was one of my favorite childhood, you know, hosts... He had a place in the forest, he had a toucan. It's what every girl dreamed of, you know. Um, he hung out with Mr. Dressup. He, you know, he's one of, uh, he's actually an acclaimed entertainer. You think of him as a ch- children's entertainer. But um, he's actually coming to the Pit Pub on the 13th. Hold on, he's coming to the Pit Pub. He's coming to the Pit Pub. At UBC. You can come, you can have a beer, and you can watch Fred Penner. Sing about sandwiches. Oh. Sandwiches? Cats coming back, coming in and sitting right down. All the classics. Um, and we actually may even be talking to him next week. Don't want to, spoiler alert. Um, but it's an evening with Fred Penner. Doors start at 8 and shows at 9.30. It is 19 plus people. This is for, this is for the 20-somethings and the 30-somethings. Yes, and I think it's totally perfect. Um, and we'll be sponsoring it, so I'm really excited. Last year, it sold out. Um, and it's backed by popular demand um he does the folk um you have the nostalgia and he also covers contemporary tunes if i would kill to see fred penner cover radiohead is all i'm saying um (laughs) 
So he's also <laughs> going to be performing at uh, the Presentation House in North Van later in the month. So we're going to have more on that next week. So, you know, anyone who wants to come drink a beer, listen to a childhood hero, um, one of the most diverse and interesting, and actually really on the edge of, like, media, Fred Penner. I will talk more about it next week. I don't want to ruin I it. I like it. I know. I like all of the things you just said. I also want to tell you a little bit about Kismet or Fate. Uh, Kismet 1 to 100. Um, the final weekend almost showed uh, sold out in Studio B. It is an amazing production by Chop Theater that works, uh, that is uh, young people. So it's, it's youth theater 20-something, you know, kind of style. And uh, uh, Kismet 1 to 100 is put together by Amelia uh, Fetty, Daryl King, Anita Roshan and Hazel Venzon. So get ready to meet 100 people and discover a little bit about yourself in each of them. In Kismet 1 to 100, it's a, it's an intimate and thoughtful cross-examination of the Canadian psyche. Featured in the, uh, It's in the spring of 2009. Four artists set out across Canada to interview 100 people aged 1 to 100 about their experiences and beliefs around Kismet, fate, and destiny. And what they do is they take these interviews and then they recreate them as storytelling and mm. as multimedia. Cool. So we actually have posted a video online. Um, tickets are going fast. And um, let's see, we have uh, Kismet 1 to 100 premiered at the Theatre Center's Free Fall Festival in Toronto, March 2010. So uh, it's been selling out all over the country. So please, uh, March 8 to 17th um, at the Gateway Theatre. Studio B, a Chop Theatre production. You can check out tickets at www.gatewaytheatre.com. It's $37, which is such a very specific number for some reason. Uh, full-time students with a valid ID, only 30 bucks. Do you believe in fate? 100 people, 100 answers. I love it. And Chop Theatre does phenomenal work, so go check them out. They do great things. Yeah, they they're, they uh, you know they do writing and producing, and it seems like a real way for people to come into theater. They're also actually presenting, and I didn't mention it earlier, how to disappear completely. Oh, they're okay. one of the companies involved in that production as oh, well. Oh, fantastic! So yeah. uh, a real good tie-in, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, learn more about them online. Yes. Now I don't. I heard a rumor about a giveaway. Well, we're going to get there, but first, oh, so I, I should get, get your dialing fingers ready. Six zero four UBC CITR. We went really radio there for a second. Yeah, we did. I pretended that I didn't know. 604. Uh, okay, 604 UBC CITR, which in number format is 8222487. Um, get ready to call that number in a second, but first, um, I want to tell you about a show that is being co-presented by the Fire Hall Arts Center, the 2012 Chutzpah Festival, and Touchstone Theatre in a presentation of Volcano Theatre's Goodness. Uh, it tells the story of a writer who, while searching for his family's experience during the Holocaust, meets a woman who has also lived through genocide. Uh, and so it's a very interesting play. Um, it's going to be, uh, it actually started uh, last night, um, March 6th uh, until the 11th. And uh, again, that's at the Fire Hall Arts Center, which is uh, just sort of at the edge of Gastown, the east edge of Gastown at, uh, on East Cordova. And uh, it's at 8 o'clock Tuesday to Saturday. There is a 1 p.m. matinee on Wednesday and a 2 p.m. matinee on Sunday. I don't know why I told you about the 1 p.m. Wednesday matinee because that was today. But anyway, I the bet show it was great. It probably was, and you <laughs> should go see it before it closes on Sunday. Uh, runs through the 11th. Goodness, awesome. Okay, now we're going to talk to you about this wonderful um, group called Tiempo Libre. 
So the dialing fingers are ready, and now they're figuring out what they're dialing for. Yeah, we so did this in the right order. We are, it's, I mean, there's a there's a system, and a, we're we're all over this. It's gonna be awesome. So this is a high voltage <laughs> Grammy nominated Latin septet, uh, and they are going to be uh, bringing audiences to their feet uh, this Friday, March the 9th at eight o'clock at the Chan Center here at UBC. Uh, and they have released a number of albums, and as I said, have uh, been nominated for a few uh, Grammys. They are from Cuba and um, are based in uh, Miami, Florida. And um, yes, we're going to give away some tickets. We are very lucky here on the Arch Report to have a pair of tickets to this show. Uh, if you want to buy the tickets, they're priced from forty-seven to fifty-three dollars. So you're getting quite a quite a honking deal here on the uh, and there are uh, students and you know senior citizen discounts yes you know a lot of people they we don't actually do music that often on the arts report and there's a couple of reasons I thought this was really interesting and I'm sure Nick mm-hmm. will agree with me first of all we're holding in our hands right now one of their old CDs that is uh, Bach in Havana so it's can- not like back in Havana no. like Bach. Bach yeah really get that guttural Bach. sound going Bach. um yeah, they're covers, I guess you could say, interpretations of uh, Bach classics. And, uh, I mean, that's so interesting. Yeah. The other thing that I found really interesting is that um, Tiempo Libre, um, when the members were growing up, the Cuban government forbade its citizens to listen to American radio. Mm-hmm. So... Obviously, you tell a kid not to do something. Um, and so they, you know, they figured out how to make their own radios. They got the sound waves from Miami. And this is this kind of, so it's a mix of traditional and, North, you know, North American Cuban beats. So I, I just thought that was such an interesting story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, talk about, you know, radio changing lives. Absolutely. N- not to be self-serving, but... <laughs> no, not at all. Um, no, it, you're you're absolutely correct. And their music is fantastic. I was listening to their new record, uh, which is uh, just came out earlier in 2011, and um, it, this was after Bach in Havana. We're going to play a track from this record in a second here, but um, it's 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 really great. It's fun and uh, it's lively, and it's going to be at the Chan, and the Chan, of course, is a wonderful, wonderful uh, space to hear some live music in. So we want to give you a pair of tickets for you and a friend uh, to go check out the show this Friday, March the 9th at 8 o'clock, but you have to call us right now. The new album is actually called My Secret Radio, and it's Look actually... That. Yeah, and, uh, you know, they perform with Michael Jackson, Shaka Khan, who I just... Shaka Khan. Come on, that's a Classic. I wish radio had cameras so you could have seen the little move Megan just did with when she said Shaka Khan. Anyway, I'm sorry. Well, actually, you have to do that move when you say Shaka Khan. You have to work the shoulders. It was a neck thing. Um, And they've actually played with Gloria Stefan now illegally on the radio. Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, they they caught or not performed with Brother, but caught bits and pieces of that and then, you know, incorporated those performances into their performances. Um, And their previous albums, Bach and Havana, Loque Esporabas and Eros con Mango have all been nominated for Grammy Awards, unlike my pronunciation, which is not going to win any kind any, of award at all. No, let's play it. Let's play, let's play a song and let's give you tickets. So give us a call. The number once again is 604-822-2487. So call us right now. One more time. 604-822-2487. And we will give you a pair of tickets. Uh, we're going to play you a track right now from their album Bach in Havana. Uh, this is called Fuga. It's a cha-cha-cha song, uh, and it's based on Bach's um, Sonata in D minor. Oh, that's my favorite one. This is a good one. It's uh, this is the Arts Report on CITR.
Oh, that was fun. That was uh, Tiempo Libre from their album Bach in Havana. I really enjoyed that, actually. That was a lot of fun. I kind of was listening to it, and when you hear those little keys at the end, you're like, there it is. That's that's, that's it right there. I don't know anything about classical music, but I can recognize that. Yeah. <laughs> Good times. Okay, well, you know, we got one more feature for you guys. I should mention I we've, gone, we've gone way over time, oh, but yeah, so this is still the Arts Report. It's still the Arts Report. We're still on CITR 101.9. And you can FM. still stream us live at CITR.ca. And later you can download us. Right and to you your can pod. Pod, and you can uh, like us on Facebook and tweet us on Twitter. Yes. Do all of those things. Do it three or four times. Um, yeah, Real to Real, we are going to overlap with them, and then we're going to have a shameless a little bit early. It's a little Ooh. bit extra of the shows you love. This is great. So, um, I actually had a really cool experience. I got to see a screener. Uh, it was my first screener. Um, and it was for People of a Feather. Now, if I told you that, hey, I'm going to show you this really uh, interesting movie about a duck, I'm sure you would say, no, you aren't, and then leave the room. But don't. Don't do it. Uh, it's about the eider duck. And it isn't only about the eider duck. Um, the eider duck... Uh, to excuse a northern pun, tip of the iceberg. Um, Joel Heath uh, made a film called People of a Feather uh, that spans 10 years in the Arctic uh, following the eider duck, and that's what brought him up there. He's a uh, mathematical biologist, or he's a biologist. He deals with statistics. Um, he uses imaging, and uh, I, I, I couldn't explain it to you, but he was following the fact that the community that lived up there um, had noticed the eider duck, who they depend on for, they have the warmest um, they have the warmest down in the world, and they use it for their clothing, and it's also kind of a mainstay of the food chain there. So they live in these little um, spaces between the sea ice and they dive. Um, they look like fish underwater. It's really interesting. Anyway, died off in the thousands, like 12,000 of them. And they're telling the government and they're telling local people this is happening and no one's paying attention. And Joel Heath goes up there to study this and he finds some pretty amazing things. Not only does he find obviously an amazing thriving community mm -hmm. um, with this combination of modern technology and traditional uh, hunting and living methods, but you know, there's a whole ecological environmental change happening there. The seasons themselves are actually reversing because of the fresh warm water that's being dumped from hydro dams. It's changing the salt water to, to fresh water. Hmm. It's making things warm. It's changing the way the ice is moving. And this is affecting the entire ecological system right into the current, right into the very Pacific current that basically drives a lot of the movement of the sea. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a worldwide problem wow. that people uh, you know, aren't even really noticing. And so he made this film. It um, was in the Vancouver International Film Festival last year. Um, it's f played all over the world, and it's won numerous awards, including Best Environmental Film at the Vancouver International Film Festival and Best BC Film from the Vancouver Film Critics Circle and also got a bunch of audience awards. So Seven Winters in the Arctic, People of a Feather goes through the whole world of the Inuit and in the Belcher Islands and Hudson's Bay. And they actually do this really interesting where they compare um, traditional methods and modern methods. Um, Joel himself was actually born in St. John's, Newfoundland, and he's long had a passion for both the arts and science. And I asked him, um, how did he, uh, did he know the issue that was going on? What brought him up to the north? Bear with me for just one second. There is, in fact, an interview here. All right, let's do it. 
the issue about hydroelectric projects wasn't on my radar, uh, but we knew that there was these major die-off events happening. Um, And so when I went up there, the Canadian Wildlife Service had been contacted by the community about some pretty major die-offs of thousands and thousands of birds in the 1990s. And so they were, they'd already done a, like a year or so of work up there. And then I came up for my, for my PhD to kind of look at the winter ecology of the eider and try and understand what it takes them to get through the, to get through the winter. Has there been any response from the government or from hydro? No, we haven't had a government or a hydro response yet, but I think we're definitely moving in that direction. And what has happened is that um, a dialogue has opened up with people about these issues. Uh, it's the kind of thing that hasn't really been on people's radar for a while. And so to be at the Q&A and to hear people talking about it and um, wanting to do something about it has been really encouraging. So um, I think this is really going to help us start a dialogue with Hydro-Quebec as well. And I think they could be involved in a lot of solutions. That There's other ways to store energy besides water behind the dam. Um it would take a lot to change over some of their infrastructure, but I think even using their capacity now, they could kind of make some some important steps that would help address the problem as well as provide alternative energy sources besides besides oil. Because a lot of the communities that are in proximity to the hydroelectric dams are still burning diesel. There's like places in Nova Scotia are still burning coal, and we definitely have energy demands that do coincide with the hydrological cycle. So I think if there's different ways to store and distribute the energy, then we can kind of address a lot of problems at the same time, and uh, the hydro industry can be a big part of that. Uh, now, um, can you just help me out for a second? Um, pronouncing the community name? Sanikilowak. Sanikilowak. It seemed like quite the friendly relationship with them. Um, does that relationship continue now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's lifelong friends. Like, even within the first year I was there, we became really good friends. And uh, after 10 years there... It's, it's been great. I'm going up for a week this March. Um, not quite long enough, but it's, it's going to be so great to get up there and see people. And uh, this year we're spending most of our time kind of on distributing the film. And it's been really exciting because both Sin, the main character of the film, and Johnny, who's kind of the main guy helping behind the scenes, came to Toronto and they came to Vancouver and got to see what my life was like here and people here got to see what life was like up there through the film. So it's been uh, it's been really exciting. Can you tell us a little bit about what's coming up next? Obviously, you're going to be having the showings over the next few weeks. Um, but we've started a charitable society, the Arctic Eider Society, to kind of keep the momentum going and try and use any proceeds from the film to address some of these problems. So there's a few things we're doing. Some of it's kind of education. We're developing educational materials that are kind of bringing culturally relevant curriculum to northern schools about sea ice habitats. Um, we're also providing Inuit with oceanographic equipment, the salinity profilers kind of thing. You'll see a little bit of that in the film. And uh, that way, when people are out living sustainably, getting food from the land, we can kind of help make that happen by provide, supplementing gas and that kind of thing and giving people meaningful jobs, like monitoring their environment to try and understand the problem better. Mm-hmm. And we're also looking for ways that we'd like to start a scholarship program for student projects that are kind of developing ways to work with the seasons of the hydrological cycle so to try and find energy solutions. You were you were saying earlier that part of your study was, you know, to film and to collect images, but did you consider yourself, uh, you know, a documentarian, a document uh, filmmaker? Is this something that was in the back of your mind or did that come later after um, the kind of 
scope of the issue became clear? Yeah, that definitely became later. Um, I've done lots of still 35 mil photography over the years, and uh, as a biologist, you get to go to some pretty amazing places that facilitate that. And I made like a travelogue video when our family lived in Uganda for a year kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I went up to the Beltra Islands to study ecology, and I was using a video camera to film the birds diving underneath the ice, and I was using time lapse to study how the sea ice changes in animal distributions and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, my intention then was I was doing that for research mostly. Um, but of course, I was filming things for fun just for myself. And then when we were getting this really amazing underwater footage, we were showing it to people in the community, um, which was really exciting. And then we got really inspired by films like at Najwa at the Fast Runner as well and realized that, you know, we could maybe use this kind of footage to, to get the message out to a broader audience as well. Um, and so that's kind of where it all started. So it really does have an impact not just on the animals but uh, and how they deal with the seasons but of course the livelihood and the day-to-day life of uh, the community um, if you could speak to that a little bit because obviously you know when you're depending on the seasons um, and those seasons change it disrupts uh, a way a traditional way of life can you speak to that a little bit the idea is kind of really just symbolic it's the canary in the coal mine and this is critical habitat for polar bears um, it's sea ice habitat that's important, important for people. Um, so, yeah, it's much bigger. The real motivate for me, it's first and foremost, it's a cultural film. It's about the relationship between the people and the birds 100 years ago and in the present day. And the story of the either kind of ties together the past and the present and where things are going with the future. Um, and so a big thing is that it really, instead of like having kind of a talking heads documentary or something that really tries to have the hydro thing come in as the most important thing. I think it's most important that people understand a little bit more about the Arctic, what it's like up there, what daily life is like. And in order to understand the problem, you need to understand what's at risk, how the sea ice works, and how people interact with it. And then, So that was kind of the main goal of the film, is to, to let people know what it's like to live in the Arctic, what daily life is like, comparing and contrasting the past and the present and the uh, to get an idea of what's at risk. Even though you're using a skidoo <laughs> instead of dogs, um, the, the, the actual day-to-day life is, is remains so true. Yeah, for sure. The people have really incorporated their traditional culture in, in modern or vice versa, I guess, modern culture into their traditional kind of way of life. Mm. Um, so people do use skidoos instead of dogs, for sure, but and with CAC these days as well, you have to travel a lot further than you used to as well. So, um, skidoo's definitely a, burn lots of gas kind of thing, but exactly. uh, it's a trade-off. People are going out to get local, free-range, organic country feed to bring back kind of thing. To see how people live when they're involved in the absolute process and how it's it's like ecological communion, basically. Um, it's, it's a really beautiful thing, so... It might be shocking to people at first, but most people that have seen that have said that they really, really appreciate having seen it. And I appreciated having seen it. Um, yeah, one of the scenes in the, the movie is actually them hunting and killing a seal. Oh, wow. And what's funny is that just previously uh, I was watching something else and it had a, a scene where they were killing a cow. 
you know, industrial. Mm. And it just broke my heart. And it's a really scary thing. And then I watched the seal. It didn't affect me in the same way. I mean, it's still a life being taken so that people can eat. Yeah. Um, but the, the difficulty they went through and the fact that, you know, they had been outwitted a number of times during the scene and then they get it and they use, you know, that stereotype of using the whole animal. Yeah. Totally true. They use its kind of... Uh, ligaments and guts to like string up with the skin and put everything inside and it's 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 bloody but it it's almost this really interconnection between mm-hmm, these two people mm-hmm. um the other the other thing that was really interesting was um i'm i'm a bit of a science nerd for someone who doesn't know anything about science like i love learning about ecology so um if you're interested in cultural experiences if you're interested in seeing some beautiful imagery and if you want to learn a little bit more about um these kind of intercol ecological and political things that are happening because they had said uh, the Hydro in Quebec said they were going to, they're building another project mm-hmm. and they said they were going to do a study mm-hmm. as to the effects and that study has not been done yet. Right. So you can see this um, at the Denman Cinemas uh, tonight at 7, tomorrow at 9 and Friday at 7. So that's 7th, 8th and 9th at the Denman Cinemas. And then Saturday and Sunday at the Rio Theatre at 7 and 9. Mm. And then a few more shows after that. TB, uh, uh, at venues, TB, TB, TB announced. Yeah, um, I think it has something to do with the the, tr- the fight that Rio is doing right now to do evening movies. Uh, um, I'll yeah. just let you know that if you want to donate, um, the Arctic Eider... Society. It's www.arcticider.com. And you can also go to www.peopleofafeather.com. And those will give you more uh, information about the issue, both in terms of the ecology, the politics, and the community that's living up there. Um, I just wanted to mention that um, he, Joel, has been one of the Canada's largest international polar year outreach projects. Um, his research was recently published as a cover story uh, in the Proceedings of the Royal Society, which is a very uh, prestigious like mm-hmm. science journal. And um, during his time in the Arctic, Joel listened to the Inuit tell stories of a troubled future due to neighboring hydroelectric dams. Um, and he actually collaborated with them, so they created a... Um, Senekulak, uh, apologize for my pronunciation, um, Senekulak running pictures. And um, it took seven winters to film and five years to produce. Mm. So it's an amazing story and um, definitely deserved your time. So please uh, go online, check out the information, and then go to the Denman Cinners, Cinemas or the Rio Theater this weekend and check it out. That sounds great. Yes. Thank you to Joel Heath for uh, for talking to me. It was mm-hmm. a really interesting experience. And he was actually um, a fellow here at UBC oh, in cool. mathematical biology. So Aha. local connection. This is good. So um, we are uh, just about out of time. That was our first show together, Megan. That went well, I think. How, what about you guys? You guys let us know um, if it went well. Um, if you did not think it went well, then please do not send us any mail. No, we always welcome your feedback. I'm just joking. You can email us, yeah. uh, arts at citr.ca. You can uh, find us on Facebook, CITR. Their support. support. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and uh, YouTube. We have a YouTube channel which has a number of extended interviews and some exclusive to YouTube content that you can't otherwise find in, yeah. say, a podcast. So uh, check out all of those social media and find us there. Yes, fantastic. And and thank you to Nick. Thank you to uh, Jeannie, our blogger. Thank you to Adam and Laura for joining us and Adam for his fun facts about International Women's Day. Mm-hmm. And, and thanks to you guys for listening at home. Um, I've been Megan Thomas. He's been Nick Sartor. And we're going to leave you with a little more Tiempo Libre because I enjoyed the heck out of that. 
Sorry, I said it the heck out of it. That was good. And join us next week when uh, Megan will be here to talk more wonderful arts report goodness. As far as I know, or I thought you were going to be here. One of us will be here we'll next week. We'll decide and we'll get back to you. <laughs> Have Thanks a great night. Thanks for joining night. us. Bye, everybody. <laughs>